Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, invite you into this space. Be with us here this morning. Challenge us as we open up your word. Study who you are to us, Lord. Meet with us here, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Tell me. Shout it out. You can shout it out. We're, we're good friends here. What kind of things keep you up at night, make you anxious, give you the sweats, freak you out? Right, yeah, snakes, spiders, absolutely. Heights, yes, particularly that sudden stop at the end of falling from heights, yeah. In the first service, I actually saw a guy point to his wife, and I thought, whoa, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, can you believe that? I'm thinking, this man is completely fearless. You have nothing to fear. Some of us, we're freaked out by the physical things that we know can hurt us. Bears and snakes, clowns. (laughs) Some of us fear the things that we can't control. You know, what if our house catches on fire? Or what if our flight is canceled or delayed and we miss part of our vacation? What What if our kids don't turn out that way that we want them to? And I know people who think that fear is a great motivator, but my experience has been much more of the opposite. When I fear something, I try to avoid it at all costs. You know, I don't, I don't walk down dark alleyways in big urban environments. I don't crawl into caves in the middle of winter and try and poke a bear. And if I can, I try and stay away from kids' birthday parties and circus sideshows. Stay away from them. Forget about it, right? But something else that I avoid is allowing my fears to cripple my faith. After all, fear is really believing that something else has more power in our lives than Jesus Christ. Our faith in Him is about believing that that being like Jesus means that we have the power to conquer the same things that He has already conquered. His power is within us, and if we believe in Him we trust in him and have faith in him, then we will not let our fears change the way that we live like Jesus. Now, I know usually when I speak to you guys, I, I'm not this direct at the beginning of the message. I tend to be a little bit more withholding. But today, I wanted to be forthright with you. And um, I know, sorry, I'm withholding, but... Anyway, we're going to be on a cruise today through the Gospel of Mark. And this is one of my favorite books in the New Testament because the author, who many people believe is John Mark, it's it's not been um, definitively uh, decided that he was the author of this text, um, but a lot of people do think he is. Now, he this is the same John Mark that was in a discussion and a disagreement with Paul about where they were going to go to next on uh, their missionary journeys. And um, But what we see throughout this gospel is that the author, John Mark, is an evangelist at heart. 
This is a gospel that's clearly written to a Gentile audience. And the author builds a case for faith in Jesus throughout this text. And and it culminates in the 8th chapter when Jesus proclaims that he is the Messiah. And he says that anyone who wants to be a follower of God must lay down his life. We're going to talk about that more next week. Uh, But this week we're going to talk about all of the ways that Jesus demonstrates his power over evil so that his disciples can see that there's a reason, a good reason to have faith in him. Good reason to lay down their lives as a sacrifice as his follower. And I want to be really clear about this, that, that the fears, the things that people might experience, that they, they're afraid of dealing with, that Jesus, as he demonstrates his power over those things, it's really the evil. It's, it's the enemy, it's Satan, uh, that he is demonstrating his power over. So when we see, when we read these texts in a moment, we can relate. We can relate right here in this moment in 2017 in Westerville, Ohio, with any of the new Christians who would have been reading this text in the first century. Um, in fact, Mark's earliest readers uh, who experienced the malevolence of the enemy needed these stories of the disciples to hold on to in the same way that we do today. Even though the power of evil was broken on the cross, we still wait for Satan's final defeat when Christ returns to us as he rides in on that white horse and makes his home in the new Jerusalem. But until then, we, just like the first century Christians, must hang on to the stories of the disciples as they watched Jesus have power over all creation and over all evil. We're going to start today in Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. And as you turn there, I want to give you a little context for this story. Up until this point, Jesus has been teaching his disciples and all of the people who would come and listen to him. And he's been teaching in parables. We we read about the parable of the sower, the lamp under a basket, the parable of the seed growing, and the parable of the mustard seed. And, And if you put these parables together and all of their teachings, if you condense them down into what Jesus is really trying to say, and you create one central thought, you might read this. Jesus was saying, the good news is a message that needs to be spread around. And while it may have small beginnings, it will grow huge by the time of its harvest. Jesus is giving an indication of what to look for, what to do for his disciples. And now in this next section of Mark, he's going to show us who's going to lead this charge. Mark 4, verse 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. That's the Sea of Galilee that he's talking about. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Now, I want to just take a moment to point out something here. This particular moment in Jesus' life is very reminiscent of another story that we read in the Bible. If you were to turn to Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, you would read, 
But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest, so much that the ship uh, threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Now, I point this out, not because I want to compare Jesus to Jonah or say that they're doing the same thing, but rather to say that they are opposite of one another. See, Jonah was running from his call to share the redemption of God to the Ninevites, a pagan people. And Jesus was leading his disciples on a boat to go share the good news to a different pagan people. What happens next in this testament is... A testimony of the power of Jesus. So as we continue on in Mark's gospel. And they woke Jesus and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, this is a cool story, right? But you have to know what the sea represented to the Jewish people to see what's even deeper in this story. See, Jesus wasn't only commanding nature in the minds of his disciples, Of course, that is what he was doing. He created the wind and the waves. But for the Jews, that sea, the body of water, meant so much more. With the exception of fishermen, the Jews were not seafaring people. And the water represented an evil force that wanted to destroy God's creation. We read in the book of Daniel about the four monsters that come out of the abyss. This is where they lived for these Jewish people. And this store that came up, the storm that came up on the boat, it was threatening to destroy the creation of God. But Jesus was so confident in the sovereign power of God, knowing that he could calm the storm with just a few words. He was so confident that he was sound asleep on a pillow. That's faith. And when they reached the shore, they were then approached by another evil force. We read in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Mark about the account of the demonized man. I'm not going to read the entire story. So here's a little bit of the context. Jesus steps off the boat. And he's met by a man who's been living in the tombs, out in the graveyards. He's been running around. He's naked. He has supernatural strength. The people in this town where he was, they had bound him up with chains. But this man was so strong because of the the forces of evil that were at work in his body, he was breaking all of his bindings. He screamed all the time. And he he would cut himself with with, um, shards of clay pots. And he runs down to Jesus... And says this to him, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. 
And in the story, there was up on a hill a herd of pigs that Jesus saw, about 2,000 of them. And he commands the demons that are inside of this man, the, the, the legion of demons that are inside of this man, to leave him and enter into the pigs. And the demons do this, and then promptly they run the pigs off of the cliff into the sea right where evil lives. The men who then were hurting these pigs are obviously mad at Jesus. I mean, he just took away part of their livelihood. And they run into the town and they go and tell everybody about it. And when the townspeople get back to Jesus to confront him about this, they see something that astounds them. Verse 15 of Mark chapter 5. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man. The one who had the legion. And he was sitting there. He was clothed and he was in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Jesus' power, it frightened them. Now, I want to talk about what's really going on here. Because this is is a part of the story that we don't often think about. Right after this... This uh, demonized man, he says he wants to go with Jesus to where he's about to go to. But Jesus says this to him in verse 19. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This is a moment when the disciples of Jesus are seeing right in front of them the parables that he had just taught them before they had crossed the sea. They were seeing these parables lived out right before their very eyes. A man who had received the gospel, this demonized man, he receives salvation and he's already experiencing a hundredfold fruit in his life because his life is saved. The demons who wanted to kill him now are gone from him and he has freedom. He has new life. Salvation, And then he's sent off to let his lamp shine the light of the gospel to the pagan world of the Decapolis, where he's from. It's a small beginning, one man, a meager beginning. Who, this one man, who really is in fact the first apostle to the Gentile world. Think about that for a minute. So often we think that the demonized man was just some guy who had his life forever changed in this dramatic story, which is true, but he's so much more. His testimony of what Jesus did in his life is the very first of its kind. And, and it's fruit. This is the fruit. This is so amazing. It's part of what's going on here. If you look on this map, you see Decapolis that's in, in this green area. This is the pagan world that existed across from the Jewish world, separated by the Sea of Galilee. It was made up of the pagan nations that Joshua drove out as recorded in Joshua chapter 3. These nations, they worshipped pagan gods, the fertility cults, and, and they considered the pig a sacred animal in the very same way that the Jews considered the lamb a sacred animal. Think about that. Jesus, the Lamb of God, just drove out a legion of demons from a man into a herd of pigs, the pagan sacred animal. 
And this place, the Decapolis, this pagan world, we know now, because of what history tells us, that it became the strongest center of Christian culture in this part of the world. In fact, in fact, the councils at which decisions were made that have shaped our Christian doctrine, the things that we believe, the things that we hold on to, our creeds, in fact, the way that our Bible is put together and stored as a canon of Scripture, all of these decisions made at councils that were attended by a bishop from Kersey. Now, I know this doesn't really seem significant to us, but if you look on this map, Kersey exists right there in the Decapolis, the very same place where this demonized man was healed. Other maps indicate that Kersey is the, the, um, in the country of the Gerasenes or Gergesa, right there where the man with the demon was healed. It's not too big of a jump to think that the evangelism of this healed man may have been the catalyzing event for major faith and doctrinal decisions that we experience today. Think about that. We, what we do know for sure, we can't prove that he was the one who led all of these people to, to Jesus. But what we, what we do know for sure is that Jesus sent this man who had understood redemption by the power of God for maybe 15 minutes. He sent him to be an evangelist in one of the darkest regions of the world. He was thrust into pagan territory with only his testimony of what Jesus had done for him. And if you look into Matthew 15... You'll see that after this event, when Jesus sent the now healed demonized man away, that people from all over this region knew about Jesus and his power, and they brought their sick to him to be healed. The demonized man, he was a powerful evangelist. Now I wonder how many of us believe that what Jesus has done in us and what he's doing is enough to draw others to him? Or, or do we believe that we need to know more about the Bible so that we can be effective evangelists? A Gentile with no previous knowledge of Jewish tradition who had been healed by Jesus from demon possession was enough for Jesus. You see, Jesus had faith that the man's story of transformation was enough. Jesus had faith in him. And that man had faith in Jesus. What if we lived like this? With more faith in Jesus and what Jesus has done in us than faith in the things of this world that maybe could overcome us. Because that's really what fear is. Faith that the things around us are more powerful than Jesus who lives inside of us. I was talking to a dear friend of mine recently. And she was telling me about how her mother came to Jesus. She had been praying for her mother for years to receive Christ. And her mother became ill. It wasn't life-threatening, but it was life-altering. And one day, her mother called their house, she and her husband's house. And uh, my friend's husband answered the phone. And before he passed the phone off to my friend so she could speak with her mother, he told his mother-in-law that he had been praying that Jesus would heal her. A week later, when they went to see their mother at her house, she told them 
that she wanted a relationship with Jesus because of this man's faith that Jesus might heal her. It was a simple conversation, but it was boldly spoken about the healing of the power of Jesus. Simple faith, bold faith. Now when Jesus took his disciples on that boat across the evil sea, and he cast the demons into the abyss, he was demonstrating his power over the enemy. He was hoping that his disciples would have faith in him, that they too would have the power, that same power, because he was about to send them on a mission. In chapter 6 and 8 of the book of Mark, we read about two of Jesus' most well-known miracles. When he feeds the 5,000 and then later when he feeds the 4,000. You probably know these stories. Jesus is teaching. All these people are around him and then it gets late. So late that they can't go back to their homes to eat. And so Jesus tells the disciples to feed the people. Here's the first account. Chapter 6 of Mark, starting in verse 37. Words are on the screen. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves. He divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those men who ate the loaves were 5,000. It's a miracle, right? Jesus has this power over everything. And this story, it's important to note, takes place on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. And in a moment, Jesus is going to take his disciples across the Sea of Galilee again into Decapolis, where he will then feed 4,000. Here's that account in Mark chapter 8. Now pay attention to how many people are listening to him, because this story takes place after Jesus sent out the demonized man to be an evangelist in the Decapolis. Verse 4, Mark 8. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. He took seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. They had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. So Jesus is moving with his disciples from one side of the Sea of Galilee, at first on the Jewish side, to the other side where the Decapolis is. He feeds enormous groups of people during this time. He's teaching them, giving them food, providing for them. If, if a disciple were choosing to be like their teacher, then they're going to do the exact same things that their teacher does. And Jesus is demonstrating that his teaching, his power, is not limited to one group of people. It's not just for the Jews. Yes, they were the chosen people of God. But it's also for the Gentiles. The kingdom of God expands beyond God's chosen people. 
After all, they were chosen, not because they were his favorites, but because God had faith in them that they could expand his kingdom. This was their call. Now, every scholar that I've studied about these two miracles has pointed out the significance of the numbers in these stories. They have not said with any definitive voice that it's exactly what the, this is exactly what the numbers mean, but they all have indicated what it, what they could mean. And so I, I want to do the same thing today because at the end of these stories, at the very least, it only it reinforces the movement of Jesus and what he's doing here in the text. So when Jesus was feeding the 5,000, how many baskets were left over? How many was it? 12. That's right. 12. Right. And every biblical scholar knows that 12 is a significant number for the Jewish people. It's a number that represents the 12 tribes of Israel. And so here... Jesus is providing food for the 12 tribes of Israel right there in the promised land. And when we look to the story of the 4,000, how many baskets were left? Seven, that's right. Seven baskets full. When Joshua crossed the Jordan, God drove out seven nations from the land and they resettled in the Decapolis. They were the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. Seven nations. And now on their land in the Decapolis, Jesus has seven baskets full of food left over as he fed those people. Now, we don't know if these numbers mean these things. But we do know that Jesus brought his disciples over to the Decapolis to share his truth and to heal them from their iniquity. Never once in the redemption story of God has it been about hoarding It's always been about an ever-spreading message. Never once has the power of God been limited to Jesus, but it's been freely given to those who would choose to be like Jesus. The power of God is something that resides in anyone who calls Jesus their Savior. And never once did Jesus teach his followers to wait for people to come to them. He went out across the evil sea to demonstrate that it has no power over him. He sent his disciples out across the evil sea so that they could experience his power within them. And he invites us to do the same thing. How has Jesus' power been evident in you? How has he shown you that evil has no final power over you because of the presence of God in your life? Have you overcome addiction by his power? Have you climbed out of a pit of depression because of the power of God that's at work in your life? Have you seen his power heal your brokenness or your woundedness or your disease? Have you seen the power of God provide for you or your family in ways that you can't explain month after month, able to pay for bills that you shouldn't be able to? Have you seen that kind of power? Have you seen his provision? Have you seen the power of God bring you new life when you thought there was nothing left to live for? Have you seen him bring you restoration? Because I have. I've seen him work in my life to heal me from anxiety, to bring hope when all I had was despair. And I've seen his power at work in some of your lives. That testimony 
of his work, of his power, is what draws people to God. When they know that there is a God out there that will demonstrate his love to them in tangible and practical ways. See, your story is important because it's what brings the good news of Jesus to those who don't know it. So what is your story? What do you have to be thankful to God for? What do you have to share with the world around you that will crash into the gates of hell with a powerful blow? What's your story? As followers of Jesus... We're on a journey that will take us to places where evil is rampant. And it should bring us there. But the power of God within us will overcome that evil. We will overcome that evil because Christ already has overcome that evil. So why would we ever want to bunker down and wait for people to come to us with their hurt? We shouldn't. We should think about the power of God within us as something that we get to bring into the darkness of the world around us. After feeding the 4,000, Jesus brought his disciples north to Caesarea Philippi. And while he was there, he asked Peter who people say that Jesus is. This account is found in both Mark 8 and in Matthew 16. See, Caesarea Philippi is home to a very important part of the pagan worship rituals. At the foot of Mount Hermon in Caesarea Philippi, there was a cave that was believed to be the gateway to hell. This is where Pan was believed to go during the winter. And every spring, Pan worshipers would come and offer sacrifices to him. And it's here that Jesus has this conversation with his disciples. Matthew 16. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven as well. Imagine, imagine for a minute. This is a group of people, and they're standing there with Jesus, looking at a place where people come to worship a pagan god, a place known as the gates of hell. And Jesus says to Peter and to the rest of the people that will ever call him his followers, Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I don't believe for one moment that Jesus meant his church was going to be built right there in that specific location. But rather, he meant that it was going to be built in the people that would choose to follow him. Jesus brought his disciples to the places where he wanted to spread the good news of his power and redemption. He began with the Jews. He moved out from there to to the Gentile world. And then he went straight to the gate of hell and declared that the church... That his followers would war against it and that hell would not prevail. His church, his followers, the people that have faith in Jesus and what he did, 
those people would bring their testimony of God's power in their lives and they would push back the gates of hell until it no longer existed. This is our call, church. We're not to be bunkered down. We're not to fear the evil that exists in our world. Jesus' power in us will overcome that evil. So we are to spread his good news. The works that he has done in our lives. We're to share it with those who have not seen or experienced Jesus' power. So what say you, church? What's your testimony? How has Jesus been at work in your life? Who are you going to share that story with? How will you push back the gates of hell in your world? Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest's podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. 